Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked up to the first sort of ledge that goes around Mount Purgatory. We're going to find out that there are actual real ledges that are considered such ahead of us, but this appears to be a ledge around the mountain of Purgatory. Dante and Virgil have climbed up here through an arduous climb. They've met some lazy souls, and then they met a frenzied rush of souls. And now we begin as one of those frenzied rush of souls who spoke in a choral unison in the last episode of this podcast, (laughs) the last passage from Purgatorio. This one steps out to speak and tell his story. This is Canto 5, lines 64 through 80. 84 of Purgatorio. If you remember from our read-through of Canto 5, there are three souls who step forward and speak at the end of Canto 5. This is the first of the three. This is also my English translation of his speech. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can go there, print it off. You can make notes on your print off. You can drop a comment. You can continue the conversation with me. We're going to approach this passage a little differently than we have others. I'll explain that as we get to it. But first, let's read it. Canto 5. Purgatorio, line 64 through 84. One of them began, Each of us trusts in your good offices without swearing any oaths, unless the sheer lack of ability hinders your will. Therefore I, who speak alone before the others, beg you that if you ever again see that countryside that lies between Romagna and King Charles's realm, Do me the favor of asking those in Fano to pray for me, if they love me well, so that I might be able to purge my heinous crimes. That's where I came from, but the deep gashes out of which I hemorrhaged to death were given to me in the homelands of the Antinori, where I believed I was the safest. The man from Este made it happen. He had more anger toward me than he had a right to have. If I'd only fled toward La Mira when I was overtaken at Oriago, I would still be back where people breathe on their own. Instead, I ran into the swamp where the brush and the mud so tangled me up that I fell. At that spot, I saw my veins create a lake on the ground. You'll notice, first off, that this soul does not name himself, but all the commentators have named him. Apparently, there are enough qualifications here in the biography that he gives for us to actually trust that identification. Let's talk about who this is, first of all. And then here's how I want to be different. Let me just read the passage again, and I'm going to read it through and talk through some of the interpretive difficulties you may or may not have heard as we pass through it. I'm doing that so at the end of reading it through again and kind of stopping and commenting on it line by line, I can come to two major questions, and I want to spend the last of the podcast on those bigger questions around this speech. First of all, who is this? This is Jacopo or Jacopo del Casero. Some people do pronounce this Casero, but we know from the accent stress that his name gets in other texts that it's actually pronounced del Casero. Jacopo or Jacopo del 
Cassero. He was born sometime around 1260. As you know, records are very hard to find, but sometime around 1260, common era, and he died in 1298 Common Era. There are four important things that you should know about this Jacob or Jacopo figure. One is that he was at the Battle of Campaldino in 1289. These are when the Guelph Florentines went to war against Arezzo, and certain other towns aligned themselves with the Guelphs, or certain other towns were controlled by the Guelphs and came to war with the Florentine Guelphs, where they prevailed against Arezzo. In this Battle of Campaldino in 1289, this figure, Jacopo, fought as well as Dante. Remember in the last episode, I said to you, well, Dante may know two of the figures that step forward. Well, this is the first one. They fought together. Now, that doesn't mean they knew each other. That would be like saying uh, somebody went to Vietnam to fight on the U.S. side and somebody else from another town went to Vietnam to fight on the U.S. side and somehow they must have known each other. It's not really the case. And this was a giant battle with many different battalions in it. They could have met at the Battle of Campaldino where Dante, in fact, most likely was. There's a little bit of fudge there, but okay. Most likely was, but it's not a certainty. Commentators love to make it a certainty. There are even some commentators that build out whole stories about their friendship at the battle, you know, sitting outside the tents, enjoying a drink together. There is no textual support and no historical support for that and no support that, in fact, Dante ever actually met this fellow although he probably knew about him. Here's why. This Jacopo, or Jacopo, again, depending on which way you pronounce his name, he was the podesta, we might say mayor, of Remini, in 1294. So after he came off that battle, he got a series of very high political positions. First as the Podesta of Remini in 1294, then as the Podesta of Bologna in 1296. And this is the key one. In Bologna, the Dukes of Este, you know, like the Villa d'Este near Como, the Dukes of Este had it in for Bologna and wanted it to fall under their control. And they put a great deal of pressure on him when he was the Podesta of Bologna in 1296. He successfully rebuked them, and this is the whole problem. Then he left Bologna, and at the behest of Mafio Visconti, he was to become the Podesta of Milan. Now, let me explain this for just a second. Podestas were not necessarily native-born citizens. In fact, in Dante's day, it seems as if many city-states were talking essentially city-states in not exactly an Athens-Sparta way, but kind of like that. Many city-states considered it better to have a foreigner 
as the head of the city. Why? Because the foreigner would not necessarily be tied into any family intrigues. So we have a series, not just Jacopo del Casaro, but we have a series of figures during these years who kind of went from town to town being Podesta and were moved around by the church, by local warlords, by various political figures. And this seems to be the case. Again, this guy has now been granted by a warlord and <laughs> a churchly warlord at that. A warlord, the Podesta of Milan. He sets off from Milan and he knows better having defied the Dukes of Este and the Counts of Este and the families of Este. He knows better than to try to go through Romagna where he's going to encounter them. So he leaves Fano apparently by sea and goes up to Venice. The reason we know he must have done that is because he, in this speech, talks about running for La Mira and then falling at Oriago. These are two towns between Padua and Venice. So he must have taken a sea route up to Venice. I thought he was going to come down to Milan from the north. That's where he was waylaid. We'll talk more about that as we go through the passage. And he indeed does die in 1298. There's, in fact, a grave marker for him that fairly well, not completely, oh my gosh, so much lying in this time period, but probably historically gets it as close as we could possibly believe to a 1298 death. Oh, it's on his funerary marker, so perhaps that is indeed the truth. All right, let's look at the passage to, that goes through it. Sorry, let me just back up a minute. Sorry about that, about my being so hesitant. We are in a period in which dates are fudged, in which people make up facts. The commentators on Dante are notorious for making up stories sitting outside the tents and drinking at the Battle of Campaldino. They're making up things that they couldn't possibly know. They play fast and loose with the truth in the Middle Ages. And I think it's always important just to keep a little bit of skepticism when it comes to any hard claims that don't have multiple sources backing them up. It's always best just to, as we say in English, turn a jaundiced eye. But let's take it for what it is and go through the passage. Jacopo begins, Each of us trusts in your good offices without swearing any oaths, unless the sheer lack of ability hinders your will. This is a very interesting beginning. If you remember, Dante said, Okay, well-born spirits, tell me what I can do, and when I get back to the land of the living, I will do whatever I can. And Dante seems to kind of almost make an oath about it, the well-born spirits. He seems to place a great deal of weight on his promise. And it seems as if Jacopo starts off with almost a small reprimand saying, hey, you don't have to swear anything here. You don't have to go over the top. Maybe you don't have to flatter us with well-born spirits. Maybe that's part of it. You know what? We trust you. You're <laughs> You're in purgatory, so we trust you. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about Virgil, the damned one standing right there. But okay, we trust you. You're in purgatory. You, you can't sin here, so let's just uh, calm down. We don't need to be flattered. Nobody needs any over-the-top promises. And it is in a little interesting tonality. Dante comes out so 
florid with his promises, I'll remember you. And this guy's like, hey, hey, dude, like, back up. We all have to tell the truth here. One of the words that he uses, which is so interesting, is when he says, each of us trusts in your good offices. He uses a word in medieval Florentine that is quite loaded. What he says is beneficio, or it could be in medieval Florentine pronounced beneficio. It depends on how medieval Florentine was pronounced, and it may not actually be standardized or set. So let's say now beneficio. This term is very ecclesiastical. It has to do with the offices of the church, and it almost throws Dante into a confessor light, as if, you know, hey, you're here, you're in the body, I'm going to confess to you, I'm going to tell you my life. That's your office, your divinely sanctioned office, your beneficio, so you don't have to swear any oaths. We've seen Dante as a confessor once before in Canto 19 of Inferno with the popes in the holes upside down and Pope Nicholas waiting the arrival of Boniface. We've seen that kind of father confessor figure for the pilgrim. Um, This is a little bit of an echo of that, but there's a little bit of a slam on it too because Jacopo says unless the sheer lack of ability hinders your will. Well, would there be that little qualification? Isn't it interesting the color it adds to the passage? Dante comes out, strong, well-born spirits. I promise I'll do whatever I can. This guy says, hey, you have to get so crazy. You know, we're here in this part of the afterlife. We all got to tell the truth. You, We're going to all trust in your beneficio unless there's something wrong with you. And Perhaps this qualification, this slight bit of irony, is to remind us that Dante is in the flesh and is so then subjected to fleshly temptations. It may be a little backhanded way to say we're really interested that you're in your body, but meanwhile, we're still in a better state than you are because we have passed beyond the body. A little bit of color and irony, perhaps, in the passage before Jacopo goes on and says, therefore I, who speak alone before the others, he does seem to recognize his position as suddenly a solitary voice, beg you that if you ever again see that countryside that lies between Romagna, there's those dukes and all their crazy clans, and King Charles's realm. What he means by that is Umbria, Lazio, and what we now call the Marsh. That if you're ever there and in that countryside that lies right between those two, do me the favor of asking those in Fano. Fano, a town south of Rimini and San Marino, almost straight out on the Adriatic coast from Florence, a town that still exists today. So do me the favor of asking those in Fano to pray for me if they love me well so that I might be able to purge my heinous crimes. And this is what's interesting. What heinous crimes? We don't ever know what Jacopo did. We assume because he was Podesta of Rimini and Podesta of Bologna during very contentious times, and because he was going off to be Podesta of Milano, we assume that there was underhanded dealing here. But you'll notice that it's really intriguing that Jacopo does not 
emphasize his sin. He doesn't tell us what he did wrong. He just keeps reminding us that he did something wrong, and therefore he's got to purgate it. Moving on to the passage. That's where I came from, but the deep gashes out of which I hemorrhaged death were given to me in the homelands of the Antinori. Let's stop right there because there's a lot there. So notice that he differentiates between the place he was born and the place he died. I'm not going to say one more word about that, except that another figure who steps out right here in Cato 5 is going to make the same distinction, place of birth versus place of death. And he does it first. So he tells us, I was born in Fano. That's not where I died. The deep gashes out of which I hemorrhage to death as I translated it. The, if I wanted to be literal about it, it would be the deep gashes um, where the blood of my soul was enthroned and poured out. There's this notion that the heart is a lake. We've talked about this. is a repository of blood. This comes from Aristotle. And so he's saying that the soul is kind of enthroned in this reservoir of blood, and it is the blood is poured out, and so life comes to an end. It's just a very beautiful way of saying what I very mundanely translated as I hemorrhaged to death, the blood where my soul was enthroned poured out. Anyway, I was there, and I got those gashes in the homelands of the Antinori. What he means is Padua, Padova. The legend has it that Padova was founded by Antinor. This is a problematic little bit right here because we have already been to a place called Antinori. It's in Inferno 32. It's those who are traitorous against their country, named for Antinor. In Antinori, in Inferno, we met Boca de Abati, and then sitting right on the border of Antinori and Ptolemaea, we saw Ugolino, the man who may or may not have eaten his children. To use this word here is to call us back, of course, to Inferno and to those who were treacherous against their own cities, states, or countryside. I should mention that Antinor doesn't come in for this kind of judgment, even in Virgil's Aeneid. It's only in later writers and particularly particularly in medieval romances, that the notion arises that Antinor is one of the people who talked the Trojans into accepting the horse. This is, again, not part of the Virgilian story, but it really flourishes in medieval romances. It occurs before then, too, but flourishes in medieval romances. So that Dante picks this up, that Antinor is a traitor to his country. Uh, that comes from the medieval romances where it is established that Antinor comes to the Italian peninsula and founds the town of Padova or Padua. Moving on in Jacopo's speech. He believes he is safest in the lands of the Antinori in Padua. However, the man from Este made it happen. Oh, so he's come here thinking he's gone around the sea route, and he 
thinks he's safe, but he's talking about Atso the Eighth Deste. Atso the Eighth Deste is still alive in 1300, so Dante cannot condemn him. But we saw Obizo da Este amongst the violent who were submerged in the river of boiling blood at Inferno 12, lines 111 through 112. And Obizo da Este allegedly, again, people make things up in the Middle Ages, but allegedly was murdered by his son Atso VIII. What this Jacopo says is that essentially the man from Este, that is Atso VIII, made his death happen, made Jacopo's death happen. He had more anger toward me than he had a right to have. So right here, again, Jacopo admits some culpability. The man from Este did have a right to be mad at Jacopo, just not this mad to kill him. What is the nature of that error? What is the nature of the sin and the problem? It probably goes back to something that happened in Bologna, and Dante may be relying on his audience to be close enough to this rather famous politician's death to know what the real problem was, but we are far enough away that we can at most posit and guess one of the intriguing things about dealing with a text that's 700 years old. Jacopo goes on, if I'd only then fled toward La Mira, a town between Padua and Venice, when I was overtaken at Oriago. So he was overtaken, but he wasn't killed at Oriago. He was overtaken there. And he's, what he's saying is, if I'd run more inland a bit and not out toward the Venetian lagoons, I would still be back there where people breathe on their own, back here with you and me, the land of the living. Instead, I ran into the swamp. There's those Venetian lagoons. And there may be more to say about this. He runs into the swamp where the brush and the mud so tangled me up that I fell. Most commentators believe there's a reference to a horse here, even though it's not stated. That is, he wouldn't be on foot. That instead, the horse got bogged down in the mud, tripped, fell, he fell off the horse and died from wounds that he had received when he was overtaken at Oriago. Tradition says he was stabbed in the thigh and the groin. Whether he was or not, I can't actually say, but that is tradition. And then the phrase, I saw my veins create a lake on the ground. He bled out in this unbelievably beautiful poetic imagery of a very violent and disturbing death. Let me go back to that. I ran into the swamp where the brush and the mud so tangled me up. Maybe this is a clue as to his error. He does make a decision here. He gets overtaken at Oriago. He could run for somewhat drier, pretty swampy stuff, but somewhat drier land. And instead, he runs deeper into the Venetian marshes. Does this tell us something about his character? Does this tell us something about what he did wrong? Why he would have, in fact, incurred the righteous anger, just not quite so much anger, of Atzo the 
28th. Is this an indicator that he didn't always make the right judgments, that he ran for the mud? Just think about that morally or allegorically, that he ran for the swamp, that he ran for the fetid bits. Is this saying what the problem was here? Now, Kim, this is not a guy in Inferno. This is not a guy who's damned. He's not confessing his sins. He's here to pay the price of purgation. Well, he's not even there yet. He's asking for the people of Fano to pray enough to get him out of these lands before purgatory major, for the before the real purgatory, so he can get up there and really start doing the bit of purgation. He's now standing out here, having died a violent death without last rites. And maybe... We can see in this what he did wrong, run for the swamp. Okay, so that's the passage. We've run through it, and we've looked at the implications of it. Let's talk about two big issues in this passage. Why is this passage so geographic? Romagna, King Charles's realm, Umbria, Lazio, Fano, Este, La Mira, Oriago, Venice, I mean, the lands of the Antonori, Padua, Padova. Why is this so geographic? We have come to a place where we seem to be very connected with the geography and political makeup of the Italian peninsula. Well, it is about political power and the holding of power. This guy, after all, was Podesta of both Romini and Bologna and on his way to being Podesta of Milano. So, in fact, it is about Italian geography and politics, and we're building toward a climax. I should just tell you, we're laying stones here toward a climax about politics that's lying in a canto ahead of us. So this is the beginning of a lot of talk about political strife in Italy. Perhaps there's more to it than that. Everything that happens in anti-purgatory is intensely about Italy, Manfred, Casella, okay, not Cato, well, maybe Cato from Roman times, but not so much Cato, but everything that happens here and the people we meet are intensely about the Italian landscape. And is Dante making a comment, a meta comment, that Italy itself is caught in ante-purgatory, that Italy itself, because it is the papal seat, well, should be, papal seat's off in Avignon at this point, but okay, should be from St. Peter, the papal seat, Italy itself is very close to the redeemed life, but is caught in this no man's land before you can get to a better place. And is Dante making a whole comment here that the Italian landscape is much like anti-purgatory by saying that anti-purgatory is so full of Italian references from Dante's contemporary days? Obviously, I think so. And I think that this is part of the metapoetics that are going on here. Dante is commenting that Italy is caught in a no man's land, not Inferno, but not Purgatorio, and should be in Purgatorio because Peter established the papal see in Rome, so should be in that further part of the redeemed life being purgated to get ready for paradise, and isn't, is still outside the gates in a place that doesn't seem to have any great purpose other than hesitation, delay, and constant frustration. 
here's the second big thing I want to say about this speech. It is more straightforward than many in Inferno. All we need to do is think about Francesca and how she walks around and around and around her problem. All we have to do is think about Pierre de la Vigne, the suicide who's been turned into a tree, and think about the way he talks about himself, the way he is revelatory without actually revealing the problem of his suicide, never confessing directly to his suicide. He's put it in very fancy rhetoric. We can think about Guido de Montefeltro and the way he's constantly trying to say, well, I didn't really do anything wrong. Or Count Ugolino in Inferno, who at the end leaves us in an ambiguous place. Did he or did he not eat his children in that tower? You'll note that this speech is very different from all of that infernal speech. It is much more straightforward. Jacopo tells us what happened, tells us how he died. I had to ferret it out a little bit, but that's only because we're so far away from it. He seems to be very direct. And this, in fact, is part of Purgatorio. Language is by nature slippery. I call you back to the arrival of Garion in Inferno. Garion, the beast of fraud, which represents in some way the way language works. And the fraudsters, by and large, from the Simoniacs to the Flatterers to the Seducers, all across that landscape, Ulysses, Guido de Montefeltro, by and large, they twist language. The root of fraud may be language, which is the medium Dante works in. So the job of Purgatorio is to straighten out the slipperiness of language while maintaining its poetics. Think about this speech right here. It starts with a slight reprimand. It goes pretty succinctly through Jacopo's death sequence, and it ends at a beautifully poetic statement. My veins created a lake on the ground. I, re I realize that's grotesque and absolutely violent, but at the same time, it is a beautiful way <laughs> I know, I know, forgive me, but a beautiful way to describe bleeding out, a poetic way. It is infused with the language that poetry does best. In fact, the speech ends with a metaphor. It starts with a slight reprimand, theologically, perhaps. It moves very sequentially through the last moments of Jacopo's life, and it ends at metaphor, which tells us that there is a way that the work of Purgatorio is to help us straighten out language a bit from its slipperiness while holding on to its poetic essence. I believe this is what Dante thinks he's up to. I can also tell you, but this is so much about what's ahead of us, that Dante's going to fail, that he's going to try to take the infernal misdirection of fraudulent language that goes mm, from Garion forward, but even all the way back to Francesca in Inferno. He's going to try to take that and remove the slippery malleability of language to make it more about truth-telling while keeping the beauty of its poetry intact. And I just want to tell you, standing here, but it's too much to say, but <laughs> hey, give it to me. I just want to tell you, standing here, he can't do it. 
because no one can. Because in the end, language is slippery. Language does fall into metaphor, which is not easily defined. Language is, at its core, fraud and will always be fraudulent. It is not the human experience. It is a representation of the human experience. It is not what you felt. It is a verbalization of what you felt. It is not the way things happened. It is the way they were told. So Dante is setting himself up to fail, and he's going to fail gloriously in Purgatorio, and he's going to decide, ah, to heck with it. I'm just going to go with the poetics of language. That all lies far ahead of us. I'm not going to reread this passage. I went through it kind of closely and slowly because I wanted to get to those last two big questions. We're just going to leave it as it is. We're going to pass on in the next episode of this podcast to the next figure who steps forward. To get there, you got to subscribe. Give this podcast a rating. A comment is so brilliant to the analytics. I really appreciate your support in every way. Thank you for being part of this intellectual, metaphoric, poetic, linguistic journey with Dante across the known universe. So great, right? It's so amazing. I can't wait to get to the next speaker because he's even more difficult. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you next time.